Garden Church podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Have you guys ever felt in over your head? Have you ever felt like there was there was something you were doing and um, it was just so big, it felt so big and you felt so small? I remember in, in, I was going, it was a summer when I was going into eighth grade. My mom somehow worked it out that I could go to the high school basketball camp. And um, it was for ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders that were going to be playing in the high school basketball team. And I was a seventh grader, just graduated, moving to eighth grade. And I thought it would be great conditioning to learn how to play basketball. Now, when I was in eighth grade, I was like five foot six, 180 pounds, and quite plump and round. I know some of you are shocked. That's a true story. And so I was not the fastest or the slimmest tall guy that you've seen or a guy that wore skinny jeans for that matter. But I was passionate about basketball. And, you know, an eighth grader playing against ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th graders is is pretty overwhelming for for the most part. But I never felt in over my head until one particular day when we had to learn how to take a charge. And if you've ever played basketball, for those of you that don't play basketball, let me enlighten you on what that means. So um, the varsity basketball coach lined up all these freshmen and a couple of eighth graders. I was one of the eighth graders um, near the court or near the basketball hoop. And we were supposed to stand in front of the hoop with our hands planted, our feet planted, and our hands up. And we had to take a charge, meaning the opponent or the offense was dribbling down the court as fast as they could to run into us and try to make a layup. And so you stood there and you learn this as basketball players, as we do. We learn how to stand there with our hands up and get hit by somebody, guarding, you know, wherever we get, wherever we get hit and fall to the floor. And if we plant our feet and we don't move, we get the foul, not they. You with me? So there I was a few weeks in. It wasn't the running. It wasn't the working out. It wasn't playing as a five foot six plump basketball player against six foot eight basketball players. It was this very particular moment where I stood in line counting who which senior varsity basketball player I was going to have to take the charge from. And sure enough, it was the all star MVP, six foot eight biggest guy on the team and fastest guy for that matter. He was a monster. And I lined up as a five foot six kid thinking I'm in way over my head. What am I doing here? And sure enough, I flew across the floor and uh, and slid. I actually didn't take the charge because I came down and blocked my stuff. So that's how (laughs) that was a moment I remember being in over my head or another time in a theater like this. But it fit about 900 people. I was in a drama festival. I used to do drama and um, in high school and I was competing against all these different people in a, in monologue competitions. And I remember going to finals, which was amazing. It was an amazing accomplishment. As I walked out on stage, I just realized there are about 850 drama students, drama nerds and, and teachers. And I, as I looked out, I thought, what on earth am I doing here? Have you ever had that experience? Any of those that you're just thinking you're okay. A few of us. Are okay. Let me try another one. Maybe it's relational sense. Maybe this makes sense. Have you ever been on a date and you just felt like, what am I doing? I do not. There's no, she's way out of my league. I remember being 19 years old. I was sitting on steps in Laguna Beach like this, looking out into the sea of of blissfulness at this moment, you know, and the stars were shining and it was, it was a red tide. So it was just illuminating. Every wave was illuminating, uh, illuminated, excuse me. And I was sitting there in this absolutely drop dead, gorgeous 18 year old girl. I was 19 years old was sitting right next to me. My heart was just pounding and pounding. 
pounding and pounding. And we were talking and, and I don't even remember what we were talking about because there was one thing I wanted to say. This was our very first date. This was my very first date ever. Ever. In my entire life. And I was 19. Now you know I was a little overweight and I was single and I was very insecure. <laughs> Sex, love, and God next week is true beauty. So you're, you're going to hear about this blossoming butterfly. My baby's whistling at, at, at me. So there I was sitting with this absolutely gorgeous girl and I just thought, there's no way I am in over my head. She's, gonna, she's not going to say yes. She's not going to like me because I thought as I was sitting there, I got to tell her I like her and I want to pursue her and I want to date her. I've never dated. I don't know what to do. And I had paid for our Diedrich's coffee with quarters because I didn't have a job. <laughs> I, drew, I drove a, a, a blue Cougar, 1989 Cougar with lamb skin. Yeah. It was so awesome. The, the stereo was worth more than the car. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I sat there and I just, it was like, I was, all I could think about was this one thing. And I finally just did it. It was like this thing inside. I just had to say, I like you and I want to pursue you. And that was the first date with my wife. Have you ever just had this thing inside of you that you just had to do and against all odds, whether it was relational, whether it was you quitting your job because something inside of you is like, no, I got to go back to school. My brother, my older brother was a Long Beach police officer for a year. He went through the whole process of becoming a police officer. And as he's on the job, he was winning awards and being recognized. He saved some, some guy's life and he was just doing amazing, amazingly well. But there was this discontentment inside of him that said, this is not for you. You have to go quit your job, go back to school and become a teacher and get these kids before they get to where you were as a police officer. Have you ever had the thing that you've got to quit your job, you've got to start a new career or whatever that is, this thing inside of you is like, I've got to say yes to this and, and the world's just saying no. It's like you don't feel smart enough, you don't feel good enough, you're not, you're not old enough or you're too old or you're not good looking enough or you don't have enough money, it just doesn't make sense, you're in over your head. Can you relate to that? Okay, we're there. When I was 22 years old, God said to me, start a church in Long Beach. I was 22, right out of college, three months working on a job at a church. And I was, uh, I was, I had, I preached three messages in my entire life. I'd never led a prayer gathering. I'd never been to an elder meeting. I had never been to a leadership gathering at a church apart from when I was, I've never led a leadership gathering. I had, I didn't go to seminary. I, I, I was just all the rules and ex, or all the things, the excuses and the lies and the insecurity and the fear. There's no possible way, God, you could use me to do something like that. I live in Newport beach that long beach is not Newport. I'm engaged to my wife. I have no, what I, I have no idea, God, how you're going to do this. But sometimes when you say yes to God, new possibilities come to life. And what I want to talk about this morning is that when you say yes to God, new possibilities are available to us. And what I see throughout scripture is that God delights in using simple, everyday, ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things. It's like God favors those that have nothing good about them to do something amazing so that the world will see this has to be God. And what I want to invite you to hear this morning is that um, is a rule that we learned in improv. Actually, Uh, when I studied improv, there was a basic rule and it's this. Say yes. Just go with it. 
Because if you deny someone, for example, let's say we're performing an improv scene here and you say to me, Darren, are you excited to go horseback riding? And I say, no, we're going to go downhill skiing. I denied the scene to move forward. How many of you tracking? Okay. The rule in improv is you just go with it. Yeah, I can't wait to ride those horses. This is going to be a fun trail or whatever it is. Well, I want to invite you to see that this morning. That God is looking for willing participants to do extraordinary things. And the only qualification is to show up and say yes. You're with me. Joshua chapter 1. I just want to go through a couple of passages. We're going to land in the book of Acts. I want to just, um, we're going to start in Joshua, so it's going to be a long Sunday morning, but we have AC. If you need a Bible, oh, we need lights on because we can't see. Well, I was expecting everyone to have phones, so it's totally cool. Just kidding. Uh, We'll figure out the lights later, but uh, hopefully your eyes will adjust. I apologize. We don't have a light technician quite yet. Okay, we didn't. We haven't had lights or stage for that matter. So Joshua chapter one. Let's read this together. Um, my, My hope today is simply to make this case. And I want to make sure we're on the same page that God is looking for willing participants to play a role in expanding the kingdom. And all you have to do is show up and say yes. It doesn't matter your experience, your IQ, your talent, your resume, whether you've been to seminary or not, whether you have a career or you've done you've you've done this for a while. All that matters is you show up and say yes. Joshua chapter one, it says this after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses's assistant. Okay, time out real quick. Moses is a key figure in the Old Testament. Moses is the guy that uh, was partnering with God to free Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Do we know the story? Yes, we do. A few of us. And here's, here's what Moses did. He parted the Red Sea. He turned the Nile River into blood. He, uh, he confronted the dominant military superpower and freed millions of slaves out of Egypt. And they became his people. And, and for 40 years, uh, Moses was wandering, shepherding, leading. Leading the people of God, the Israelites, around the the desert and around the wilderness. And Moses met with God face to face. He was considered the most humble man alive. Um, He was seen as the redeemer, the liberator of all of Israel. And Moses' assistant is Joshua. So he's Moses' assistant. Think about that for a moment. And then it says this, God says this in verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river of the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate carefully on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, what did we talk about last week when something is important? What do you want to do in in the ancient writing? 
You want to repeat it three times. Do you think that the assistant to Moses was a little insecure? Do you think that the assistant to Moses was insecure because someone overshadowed him? Because someone was the, the guy for 40 plus years. Because all those other people had watched Moses do all these other things. Do you think that what, uh, uh, what Joshua saw in himself was, was not what God saw in him? That God saw something else in him. And God was drawing out something that Joshua couldn't see. But all Joshua needed to do, needed to do was show up and say Yes. And the encouragement from God, from Yahweh, is be strong and courageous three times. And Joshua goes from being an assistant to Moses to being the valiant warrior that conquers the promised land. Joshua didn't have a great uh, resume. He was just an assistant. Go to Judges chapter 6. Are you guys with me? I can't see you as well because the light's dark. But I'll tell you this. I really like the light's dark. It's kind of like the curtains are closed for those of you that went to Cohiba for all those years. It looks like I finally won the battle. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus. So, Judges, this is a, another story of God choosing the least likely person. In Judges, there's a story of a guy named Gideon. And Gideon, um, it, we're going to read about him in just a second. But what we have in Judges is the Israelites don't have a king. They don't have a prophet. They have um, basically this, the land and the territory. And sometimes they're obedient to God and sometimes they're not. And when they're not, God sends the surrounding people in the region to come in and conquer. And what happens during the time of Gideon is every few years, the, um, the Midianites and different surrounding people, come into Israel, into the promised land, and they take all their crops, they destroy their land, and they beat people up, and it's just a battle, it's horrible. But once in a while, God raises up a judge that will fight off the enemies of Israel. And in this particular case, we read a story of a guy named Gideon. And let's pick up in verse 11 of chapter 6. It says, uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak. And uh, skip down, it says this, uh, where his son Gideon, I'm sorry, I, I blew this, that belonged, <laughs> I can't even see it right here. Okay, so an angel of the Lord comes to, to Gideon, and Gideon, verse uh, 12, was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his signs and wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have uh, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So the picture of Gideon is he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Okay, so the way you normally thresh wheat is you go into the fields and you throw up the grain and the chaff, and the wind blows the chaff away, and you pick up the grain, the nuggets, or the kernels of grain. And that's how you, you take the harvest, you take in the harvest. But the picture is Gideon hunched over inside using this giant stone wine press that literally just, you, you stick the grain in there, and you slam the grapes usually, and you make wine, and it runs off in the side. And so he's crushing the wheat and the grain and the, and the chaff. And the picture is that he's literally probably blowing 
the, the chaff. He's to grab the kernel. So you have this guy hunched over hiding from the Midianites because they're going to take the harvest. And he's blowing in a wine press. And an angel walks in and says, uh, hey, what's up, my mighty warrior? That's the picture of Gideon. And then his excuse is, well, God's, you know, God hasn't done anything. How many of you have looked around and seen, oh, God, I wish you would do something here. Only to recognize that God's waiting for you to do it. That you are, in fact, the answer to the prayer that you prayed. Do you know what I'm talking about? And Gideon here, it says, I'm the, the, our, our tribe, our clan is the weakest and smallest, and I'm the least in my family. I'm too young. I'm not good enough. All the excuses in the book. And he says, go in your own strength. Am I not with you? And what does Gideon do? He goes and defeats the Midianites with 300 soldiers against a camels that couldn't be counted and an army that couldn't be counted. God used the least likely person to partner with him to do an extraordinary thing. All he had to do was say yes. That's the story of Gideon. God chooses Joseph, the least in his family. David, the youngest in his family. Um, He chooses all sorts of people throughout the Old Testament. You go to the New Testament. Jesus selects disciples. And usually when you choose disciples, you're selecting the best of the best of the best. And he chooses what? Fishermen and tax collectors. Young kids that have no concept of spiritual things. They didn't make the cut. And he chooses a guy like Peter. And Peter, uh, you've got to love this character in the Gospels. Mark does it really well because uh, Peter is orating the, the story of Mark to the, the Gospel writer Mark. And the picture is that Peter just doesn't get it ever. Ever. I mean, honestly, the guy is just dull. And, and, and I think he writes it in this way on purpose because he's showing what happens to him when he keeps saying yes. Because when he's with Jesus, you know, he walks on water and nearly perishes is what happens. Uh, he, Jesus preaches a sermon on turn the other cheek. And then when he's being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and chops off an ear. He missed that sermon, apparently. You know, P- Jesus is saying, you're all going to leave me. And he's like, no, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to leave you. And he denies him three times in Jesus's moment of weakness. When he needed friends, Peter denies him three times over and over again. Peter is the guy that doesn't get it. He's just he's just clueless when it comes to this. But on, in Acts chapter two, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands up in front of a crowd and preaches that they murdered the author of life. And he calls everyone to repentance and 3,000 people are saved. And it was on the confession that Peter said, on this rock I will build my church. And Peter becomes the founder of a movement because he said yes over and over again. God chooses the least likely people to do extraordinary things. Now we've heard of Peter, but what about a couple of other characters? And I want to focus today on a guy named Philip. So if you have a Bible, go to Acts chapter 1. I just want to um, continue to make this point and uh, open up the possibilities for what we might have, what, what might be in store for us as followers of Jesus. So um, we're going to continue the story that God, the theme that God chooses the least likely folks to do extraordinary things. Um, so if you're here and you're completely ordinary and simple like myself, um, God wants to use you. That's the message today. Um, verse eight of chapter one. So Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if you've been to the garden for a while, you've heard me talk about this text, um, dozens of times, because if you're new to the church, this is the mission statement of the church. If you want to know what we're supposed to be about, it is this acts one, verse eight, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says to those listening that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we will be given power to become witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. That our lives are to be a testimony, a living testimony to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But the, the, the emphasis of this is that we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in our context, Jesus would say, hey, you guys are here in Long Beach. Be um, my witnesses. Represent me. Uh, be a testimony to me in Long Beach, in L.A. County, in Orange County, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's the mission. Are you, guys, are you guys familiar with this? And so in Acts chapter 2, the story continues. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. People are amazed because they hear different languages being spoken um, from all, all over the world. And 3,000 people are saved. The church is born on Sunday morning on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified. Um, and then in Acts chapter 3, you can just flip along with me. Peter, um, who was the guy that denied Christ three times, walks to the temple and does what Jesus would have done. That's all he does. As he says to a beggar who is crippled sitting in front of a gate, uh, I don't have any money, but what I have, I give freely. And the guy is healed immediately and he skips into the temple praising God. And people are astonished because this guy had been paralyzed from birth. And so G, uh, Peter stands up and proclaims the Messiah again. But this time the religious system comes down on him and says, you can't do this. And in chapter four, Peter has boldness and he says to them, uh, uh, he says to them, uh, what, uh, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What is, what is he doing? He's just giving witness to what Jesus has already been in his life. Are you with me? This is just a story. Peter was, it says in Acts 4 that he was uneducated, uneducated and ordinary. Okay, keep, keep going on. Uh, Acts chapter 5, some people don't give the right amount of money to church and they're killed. Not something we want to preach about until next year. Um, welcome, everyone. <laughs> Don't worry, there's offering boxes in the back. You still have time. Just kidding. Just, I'm totally kidding. I really don't believe that. Please don't think that. Acts chapter 6. Um, so what happens is the church is growing in number. Hundreds and thousands, if not thousands of people are becoming a part of the church. And we run into a problem in verse 1 of chapter 6. I just want to catch you up on the story in Acts. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, those that spoke Greek and had a Greek culture, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, those that were Hebrew or they spoke Aramaic. So we had two different languages in the church. Multiple languages in the church is a good thing. We'll just throw that out there. Um, because their daily uh, they were, the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the, all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who have a great rep reputation of passing out food, who are really good at organization. Nope, that's not what it says. It says, who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then they go and select seven men who happen to be Hellenized. So they're Greek. Two of them are named Stephen and Philip. And so the church is growing. There's conflict in chapter six of Acts in just a few short chapters. All most of those that are following Jesus are, are ministering and living in Jerusalem. 
And there's a problem because the Hellenized Jews and the Hebraic Jews are not getting along because their widows are not getting the same amount of food. Apparently, the church is taking care of those that don't have enough food. Apparently, the church, by Acts chapter chapter 6, are taking care of those that don't have enough. There's conflict. And so rather than the apostles just waiting on tables, they say, we're going to delegate the task. And we're going to birth this ministry called the deacons. And they choose seven men. And the qualification is not that they're extremely qualified to pass out food. They needed a hospitality volunteer. They needed a, a potluck associate. And they chose people of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? And what happens is that the, the, it says at the end, um, and this is uh, uh, Luke's way of, of saying that the church did something really good. And in verse, 20, verse 7 it says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So when they delegated responsibilities, when ordinary men and women began to serve in the church, when, uh, when they weren't looking at talent and they weren't work, working at everything they brought in, but looking at character, the spirit and wisdom, this, uh, the church exploded and the number of disciples increased. But here's the point I want to make. In chapter 6, Philip and Stephen are just assistants to the apostles. You, never, you haven't heard about them until now. All, they, all they're doing is literally passing out food to widows. Not the, not the job on stage you really want. Not the spotlight job. But let's look what happens to them. In chapter 6, it says that Stephen is seized. And Stephen, this potluck associate, this hospitality volunteer, apparently is filled with the spirit that signs and wonders happen. And he's confronted by the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin court, the court that is the religious establishment, those that say this is good and this isn't, you're in and you're not, those that can crucify you or stone you, those that are the PhDs of not just the religion, but the economic system of Jerusalem and the temple. Grab Stephen, this potluck associate assistant hospitality volunteer, and they bring him in front of their, their council, and he defeats them in a debate. They're surprised that this uneducated man, filled with the Holy Spirit, takes the scriptures and shows that it is Jesus who is the Messiah. And they're so filled with outrage that they pick up stones and murder the first Christian martyr. And the martyr was not an apostle, it was a potluck associate. The first Christian to be killed for Jesus was a hospitality volunteer. Sometimes we think we want something with prestige and notoriety. But Jesus calls us to serve. Just because you set up chairs on Sunday doesn't mean you don't have a huge ministry out there. Are you with me? Look at Philip. I want to focus on Philip. Um, Chapter 8, verse 1. And this is one of my favorites. Um, because Philip is just this random dude. And, um, and we're going to read about his story. So it says this in verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Okay, hold up right there. So the day they're talking about is the day that Stephen was killed. Stephen's killed and all these um, zealots and I'm sorry, these Jews, these Pharisees go out and they start dragging out disciples and Christians of uh, Christians and, and basically putting them in prison, beating them up. And some of them were stoned and killed. And so what happens is the apostles.
apostles, the leaders of the church, those that were with Jesus most of the time, they stay in Jerusalem and everyone else is scattered. And look at where they go. Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Up until this point, the gospel has stayed primarily in Jerusalem. And now, because of persecution, we see Judea and Samaria. It's being reached by ordinary people, not the apostles. It says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word. And the, the phrase preached the word simply means wherever people went, they scattered, they shared their faith. They were just being witnesses to what they have already witnessed. They were going to towns talking about what they had experienced in their own lives. They weren't just, oh, I don't, I don't want, I, I wonder what they'll think of me. I want to contextualize this really well. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? So ordinary people are taking off. They, they go and share the word. They preach the word or they share their faith wherever they went. And then this guy named Philip, who is one of the potluck associates, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed So there was great joy in that city. So it says that Philip goes into a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah. Now the word proclaim is to herald. And it's a, it's a a very specific term that Luke is giving Philip. Philip went from in chapter six being a hospitality volunteer to being a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a phrase used for in Middle Ages when messengers of the king would, king would come in and announce to villagers the, uh, an announcement of the king. So Philip comes into a city and announces the Messiah King, Jesus Christ. And not only does he proclaim the gospel, but he demonstrates the kingdom of God. In other words, Philip just does what Jesus did. Philip does the stuff. He goes as a hospitality associate with humility, proclaims Jesus as the resurrected Messiah and demonstrates that very same reality by casting out demons and healing the sick. Do you recall in all of the Gospels when Jesus calls his disciples, he says, I give you authority over unclean spirits and to to heal the sick and cast out demons and to proclaim my message wherever you go. Philip wasn't a part of that original call as far as we hear, but he's continuing the ministry of Jesus. And here's what I think we need to hear today. That when we go and do the stuff that Jesus did in cities, cities are filled with joy. That when you go and do the stuff that Jesus did, when you take care of the poor, when you pray for the sick, when you liberate those that are oppressed, when you solve, uh, when you, when you make right the wrongs of injustice, That cities are filled with joy. Neighbors are filled with joy. People are filled with joy. Our city needs Jesus more than anything else. Needs ordinary men and women doing the stuff that Jesus did. And when you do that, the city is filled with joy. When I was uh, leading our community group that now is led by the Tim Tims, um, we used to serve uh, once a month at a laundromat right down the street on Pine and 10th. 
And one of the things we ask all of our community groups to do is to serve once a month because we believe that as as followers of Jesus, we don't just get together to talk about Jesus. We don't get together just to be accountable. We don't get together just to worship God, but we get together to serve with him on mission to to do things to bless others. Some people pass out hot dogs. Some people pass out cold waters on Saturday. Some people um, are serving at hospitals. Some people are serving at homeless shelters. Some community groups, excuse me. And our community group provided free laundry once a month. The first month we did it, 24 of us and four people. It it wasn't a great success. We overwhelmed them with our presence. Um, Hey, guys, you you want some free laundry? And they're just, what's, okay, time out, what's going on? But they said, if you come back next month... This place will be packed. And sure enough, the next month we brought food and coffee and the place was packed. There wasn't an open washer or dryer. People had been waiting for us to arrive. We ran out of money. Uh, We we thought we were only going to give a few bucks. We had to give more and more money because more and more people were coming. But this one girl came. Her name was Ray Dawn. And I'll never forget this. This was the second time we were there. And she comes up to me with tears in her eyes, grabs me, hugs me because she finds out I was the leader. And she says to me, it gives me hope again. To know that there are men and women out there like you. A few dollars gave one woman, a single mom with four kids, hope. Again. Because we showed up and did what Jesus would do. Philip goes to Samaria and becomes a city evangelist. What qualified him for this? He said yes to Jesus when Jesus says you will be my witnesses. So he just goes and does it. He casts out demons, he heals the sick, the city is filled with joy. And then um, if he was if I was Philip in this situation, I would set up shop. I would do conferences and teach other leaders how to go and make cities or build cities so that they're full of joy, how to gather a crowd and do all these things, but that's not what Philip does. Verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So here you have Jesus, probably a local celebrity. I'm sorry, Philip, a local celebrity who's casting out demons, healing the sick. The entire city in Samaria is filled with joy. And Jesus says, now you're going to go to the desert. Because obedience is the, the definition of our success, right? Success is not based on how many people we save, but how many, how, how many times we say yes to what Jesus says, asks us to say yes to. So he goes down to the desert road, and listen, I just want to make this, this final point. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch. This man, verse uh, 27, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his, way to, uh, on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, the Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, I uh, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So Philip goes and explains that very passage. And then in verse 24, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is some water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Acts begins in Jerusalem 
And Jesus says, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The apostles, the leaders of the church, stay in Jerusalem and everyone else scatters. And as they go, guys like Philip, ordinary hospitality volunteers, go to cities and they're filled with joy because of what happens. People are converted, people are, are, are healed and demons are casted out. Then he follows the Holy Spirit's guidance and goes to a desert road where he happens to meet an Ethiopian eunuch. So he's already in Samaria. He's beginning to fulfill fulfill the mission of God in Samaria and someone else is doing it in Judea. But now this Ethiopian eunuch is on his way back to modern day Sudan, traveling nearly a thousand miles. And the guy gets baptized and becomes a follower of Jesus. And the picture is this Ethiopian is traveling back to Ethiopia. And in the Roman Empire, the nickname and the common phrase for Ethiopia was the ends of the earth. The picture is the mission of God is being fulfilled to the ends of the earth by ordinary men and women who say yes. That is why you and I are here this morning. Because throughout history, ordinary, everyday men and women kept saying yes to Jesus. And we are here because of that. I believe that God is looking for spirit-filled followers who are willing to be obedient and simply say yes to the new possibilities. Jesus invites you to become his disciple. Not to become a consumer, not to become a, a, someone that sits in pews or in seats, but to become an absolute follower and participant in the kingdom of God expanding and spreading in everyday life. He invites you to live a life that is full of life. And all throughout scripture, from the Old Testament to the New, we see that God insists on our greatness. That we have all the excuses to say to him, but he insists that we can move mountains that you can do the stuff that he did. Greater things you can do, he says. Amen. That you can cast out demons and heal the sick. That you can ask whatever you want in his name and it will be granted to you. And then he commissions you to fulfill the mission that he left. Which is to renew all things. To disciple the nations and to become witnesses to the ends of the earth. To continue the ministry of reconciliation. It doesn't, matter how, it doesn't matter how old you are or how, how young you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. But all of us are called to begin to do the stuff that Jesus did. This is how the message will move forward. And if we get it, if we do it, neighbors, neighborhoods, Long Beach, Seal Beach, L.A. will be filled with joy. Are you with me? What do you need to say yes to today? What do you need to say yes to today? What Some of you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time. Some of you have never proclaimed publicly that he is your Lord. And you need to be invited and welcomed into the family of God today. But I know what most of you are thinking, you see. I know, I know most of you are like me. When I start hearing people talk about casting out demons, healing the sick... Raising the dead, going to the nations, ministry of reconciliation, the kingdom of God expanding. I think, Darren, or you think like myself, that is crazy. I will be in way over my head. Exactly. He calls us to be in way over our heads. All he wants us to do is show up and say yes. So if you are like me, 
What are those excuses? I don't have enough time. I've got other priorities. You know, I've got, I've got, I don't have enough time. I have other family commitments. I, uh, uh, man, what will people think if I quit this amazing job and pursue this thing that's been seeded deep inside of me since I was a kid? What do you mean, God, that you've given me all this, all this amazing opportunity to make all this money and you're calling me to do more of that for the kingdom? Like, that's great. Some of you are being called into greater responsibilities in the workplace. Some of you are being called to leave the direction you were headed and go another direction. All of us are being called to be witnesses, but some of us have people in our lives that we need to go to and talk about Jesus. Some of you need to start ministries that will expand the kingdom of God like never before because you haven't said yes. I believe the garden's going to explode in Long Beach. And I don't mean this gathering at all. I mean it's going to be what's going to happen is more and more people are going to be lit on fire. And they're going to say yes to something that has to do with them going to the Long Beach School District and working as a teacher. That has to do with them starting a business and and providing opportunities for people to have jobs that didn't have jobs. Some of you are going to start serving regularly and working with the homeless. Some of you are going to invite strangers into your homes. Some of you are going to be passing out tracts. I don't know. Hopefully, I mean, pass out tracts, that's fine. But some of you are going to be doing things. Not the most effective these days, but I, you know, bless you if that's your thing. But some of you have been called to something and you need to say yes. Are you with me? This is a new season for our church. We're in a new facility. We're in a new neighborhood. This is very different than three blocks away, isn't it? We have the capacity to see lives transformed here. Not because a preacher is preaching on stage, but because the disciples of Jesus Christ said yes and followed Jesus wherever that yes led them. What do you need to say yes to? Some of you need to break relationships that are not godly. Some of you need to give up sin that God's been calling you out of. Some of you need to leave your job. Some of you need to start a job. Some of you need to just go with it. You need to join our prayer team, start a community group. I don't even know what it is, but all of us have the capacity to hear God's voice and follow him with obedience. And give up the excuses. I'm not good enough. I'm too old. I'm too young. I haven't been educated. What will people think? Give it, give it up and be obedient to God. This is how we'll move forward. 90% of Long Beach doesn't go to church. 20% of our city lives below the federal poverty line. That's $22,000 for a family of four. Seven out of ten black families in our neighborhoods, in our city, don't have fathers in the homes 53 percent of all families in our city are single mom families of that 30 percent are living below the poverty line do you think we have some work to do say yes not to me to jesus about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.